this is a, a bit of a first for me today. Every time in my life I have preached a sermon, my father-in-law has been alive. And he has been probably, aside from my wife, my number one encourager in recent years when it came to doing the work of ministry and preaching the word. And it was last Sunday night that my father-in-law, after about a 13-month battle with brain cancer, uh, went to be with the Lord just four days short of his, uh, just four days shy of his 75th birthday. And so it's been a bit of a tough week for my wife and our family, but we do thank you so much for your love and your prayers. And uh, this message today, it's always for the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, but I want to preach it in honor of my father-in-law as well, who served the Lord so faithfully his entire life. Well, we are in John chapter 13. We'll be there in just a moment. This past week, I was thinking about one of my favorite foods in the whole wide world. Peanut butter. <laughs> I love peanut butter. It's one of my favorite foods. Sometimes if I just need a snack, I'll just get out a tablespoon and just do a big scoop of Skippy. I love peanut butter. Sometimes I'll put it on a half a banana for a snack. Sometimes I'll cut up some apples and have the apple slices with the peanut butter. I put peanut butter in my protein shakes in the morning. I even put peanut butter in my cereal. I figure if Captain Crunch can do it, so can I, right? I love peanut butter. And you may not know this, but one of the greatest scientists, not just in the history of America, but one of the greatest scientists in the world was called the peanut man. It was George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver was a brilliant scientist and scholar. He was born into slavery in 1864. Historians aren't even sure of his exact birthday. But he was born into slavery, and, and as he became a young man, he was able to come out of slavery, of course, because of the Emancipation Proclamation. He was set free at a very young age, and he was able to go to school and then go to college and then earn his master's degree in agricultural science. He made all sorts of new discoveries in crop rotation, and it was pretty cool because he was a humble man. He would go from farm to farm and teach southern farmers crop rotation techniques so they could increase their productivity and, and do well as farmers. He had this agri- I asked God to tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, that knowledge is reserved for me alone. So I said, God, in that case, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. And God told me the mystery of the peanut. And he went on to discover more than 300 uses for the peanut. Contrary to popular belief, George Washington Carver didn't invent peanut butter. That had already been around by then. But he did come up with over 300 uses for the peanut and well over 100 uses for the sweet potato. And he has improved literally tens of millions of lives across America and around the world because of these inventions. God used him in an amazing way, not just because he was brilliant, but because he was humble. He was humble. In the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, some of Jesus' most endearing qualities have been on display. We've seen that Jesus is incredibly wise, and he is compassionate, and he is loving, and he is powerful. But this morning, as we study John 13, we're going to see one more of Jesus' great qualities on full display. We're going to see without a doubt here in John 13 that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was so humble. Amen? 
He was a humble, humble Savior and Lord. And so we're in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Please say amen if you are there. Here we go, beginning in verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved this world, or having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my my hands and, and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what? I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. If you do them, may God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Amen. Amen. Well, as chapter 13 begins, the apostle John tells us that it was just before the Passover feast. All indications are that what John describes in this chapter and the four chapters that follow all the way through chapter 17 took place in the upper room at the Last Supper. So when Jesus says what he says and does what he does here in this chapter, just keep this in mind, he has less than 24 hours to live. Jesus has precious little time left with his disciples, so you'd better believe he's going to make that time count. Amen? So as Jesus was eating his final Passover meal with his 12 disciples, verses 1 through 3 reveal what Jesus knew. Verses 4 through 5 reveal what Jesus did. Both of these John deems as very, very important because he spends a few verses talking about this, what Jesus knew and what Jesus did. It's very important to John. Look at verse 1 again. He writes, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So during our study of the first 12 chapters of John, we've seen that on several occasions, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, especially the Jewish leaders who were called Pharisees, wanted to arrest and kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him in chapter 5 after he healed the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda because Jesus dared to do it on a Sabbath day. You go a few chapters to the right, you find that in chapters 7 and 8, they wanted to kill him while he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, if you look at John chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Yet no one seized him because his time had not 
yet come. And we find that theme running through the next few chapters. They want to arrest him in chapter 9. They want to take him out in chapter 10 and in chapter 11. No one arrested him, though. No one laid a hand on him. No one was able to kill him because it was not yet his time. But notice what it says once again here in verse 1. Jesus now knew that it was his time. Amen. He knew it was time. He knew it was time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then we read this marvelous statement at the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It's one of the reasons some of our songs this morning tied into that theme of love. Jesus wanted to show them the full extent of his love. John uses an interesting term at the end of this verse. In the original Greek, it's ice telos. Say that with me. Ice telos. So this ice telos has a, a dual meaning. Its primary meaning is to the end. So the, the version I just read for you a few moments ago was from the older NIV. It doesn't go with the primary meaning. It goes with the secondary meaning. We'll talk about that in a moment. But most English translations go with this primary meaning to the end. So Jesus is saying, I have loved you to the end. But this term, ice telos, has this secondary meaning as well. It also means absolutely or to the highest degree. That's what the older NIV goes with. I have shown you the full extent of my love, or I am about to show you the full extent of my love. And so both are really in here. Jesus had loved his disciples throughout all three to three and a half years of his ministry with him. And so if we're looking at this with this bird's eye view, we look at what Jesus has done over the last three years for his disciples. Night and day he was teaching them. Night and day he was pouring into them. He even gave them power to perform miracles and signs and wonders. And, and so his disciples were going out two by two. They're leading all these people to Christ. They're healing lepers. They're opening the eyes of the blind. They're driving out demons. Whenever they were in danger, Jesus delivered them. So over the last three years, was Jesus loving his disciples or what? He was loving them, right? But now Jesus says, I'm going to take my love even to the next level. I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. I'm going to love you to the end, but at the same time, I'm going to kick it up a notch. And he's referring, of course, to the cross as he is about to lay down his life for his disciples and for the sins of the world. He's going to take his love to a higher level. If that was even possible, he was going to do it. Verse 2. John sets the scene for us. He says the evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. By this time, Judas Iscariot had already been given his blood money. He already had his 30 pieces of silver in hand. He'd already gone to the chief priests and told them that he was going to betray Jesus into their hands. So there he is probably in, his, in the money pouch. He's sitting there with those coins of jingling in his pocket. There as he's with Jesus at the Last Supper. He's just looking for the right moment to exit subtly from the room and go and find the chief priests and lead them to Jesus so they can arrest him. According to verse 3, Jesus knew something else. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. I want you to check out how this phrase and this sentence is translated in a few other English translations. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. It's pretty good contemporary English version. He also knew that the Father had given him complete power. And then the message says it really well. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything. So Jesus was in charge of most things, right? No. 
He was in charge of 99% of things, right? No, he was in charge of everything. So keep that in mind. Let this truth sink in for just a moment. As Jesus reclines at the table for one last meal with his disciples, he doesn't just know that it's time for him to be tortured and crucified. He also has the power to stop it. This is remarkable to me. John tells us in these first four or five verses, Jesus knew it all, and Jesus had the power to stop it all. So he knew exactly who was going to betray him, right? He knew exactly what Peter was going to do and how many times he was going to do it. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He knew that all of his disciples were going to vacate the premises. They were all going to run out on him when the heat got too hot in the kitchen, right? He knew every soldier that was going to come arrest him. He knew exactly what those soldiers were going to do to him. He knew about every slap, every punch, every bit of of beating he would endure when he was scourged. He knew every nail that was going to be placed in his hands and his feet. He knew it all, and he had the power to stop it all. Yet he proceeds with what we read in these next few verses. I want you to imagine for a moment if you had the knowledge that Jesus had in that moment and you were in his sandals. If you had the knowledge that he had, you know everyone that's going to arrest you and what time they're going to come and do it. What do you think you'd do with that knowledge? I don't know about you, but I'd be bolting out of that room and heading for the hills. Okay, that guy that hates me is coming around the corner in three, two, one. I'm going to make sure I'm not there. That guy who hates me over there, he's coming in five, four, three, two, one. I'm going to hide behind a bush before I get to zero. And if you had all this knowledge, man, no one could arrest you, right? Because you know every play that's coming. It's like the ultimate uh, Super Bowl sneakery. You you got the playbook in hand of the opposing team. You know every play they're going to play, right? Every move they're going to have on the field. And, And so Jesus knows it all, yet he proceeds with a plan. And imagine not just knowing it all, but having the power to stop it all. He could have gone like this, and Judas Iscariot would have a massive heart attack and be dead on the ground. He could have gone like this, and every soldier dropped dead. He could have gone like this, and the cross disintegrate into a pile of splinters. He could have gone like this, and 10,000 legions of angels came to his rescue. He had the power to stop it all, yet notice what he does. He gets up during the meal, takes off his coat, wraps a towel around his waist, and pours water into a large bowl. The apostles are probably watching in stunned silence, wondering, what is he? He better not be doing what I think he's doing. But we're in the habit of being surprised by Jesus. We're used to this, but this seems even odd for Jesus. Is he really doing what we think he's doing? He's armed with his towel. He's armed with his water bowl. Jesus kneels down and begins washing his disciples' feet one at a time and drying them with the towel that he had wrapped around his waist. Now, I want you to see how amazing our Savior is. If you go over to Luke, Luke chapter 22, that's where we find Luke's recording of what took place at this Last Supper. Luke shares some things with us that John doesn't. Luke fills us in on a very interesting conversation that took place between the disciples here in this upper room at the Last Supper. Luke tells us in Luke 22, 24, a dispute arose among the apostles as to which of them was considered to be the greatest Can you imagine? Last Supper. Jesus is going to be a dead man within 24 hours. 
one final meal with his disciples. Over and over again, he's, he's been telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He's going to be beaten, crucified, and will rise. He's, he's been telling them this a lot. But it still hasn't sunk in. And at the Last Supper, with precious little time left of Jesus' life, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And, and so they're, they're kind of having this Muhammad Ali moment. I am the greatest. And the disciple on the right says, no, 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 no. I am the greatest. And then the disciple next to him, no, 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 I am the greatest. And they're going back and forth deciding who's the greatest. Luke tells us this argument goes on between them. And Jesus has to stop him and say, no, 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 no. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Possibly it was at that moment that Jesus took off his outer cloak, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to demonstrate what it means to be a servant. Huh. Peter and John, it's kind of interesting, something else Luke tells us. Those two disciples, who are two of the three lead disciples, Peter and John, the other lead disciple was James, but for whatever reason, whatever reason, Jesus chooses Peter and John. According to Luke chapter 22, Jesus had told them to go into Jerusalem and make preparations for the Passover. And so they go into the city and they find the upper room and being in charge of it, they would be responsible for buying the food and buying the wine and setting the table. And there was one last thing that they would have to do as proper hosts for a large banquet like that. One thing that every Jew understood was if you are the one setting up the room for a banquet, an important meal, you would make sure at the very front door there was a large water container a pitcher, and a basin. Because as Jews walked back and forth on dirt roads, even if they had taken a bath a few hours earlier, their feet would get dirty. And so something Peter and John would have been responsible for is setting up that water basin and that, water, that foot washing station. And so imagine the disciples coming into the upper room at the start of the Last Supper. One at a time, they walk by Peter and John. Let's say they didn't even set up the foot washing station. They might have thought they were too high and mighty to do that. That very possibly could have been what happened. The other possibility is they set up the foot washing station, but as those guys are walking into the room one by one, one at a time, they're like, I'm not doing it. I'm not washing your stinky feet, Peter. I'm not washing those gnarly. Have you seen those gnarly toes on Bartholomew? Man, those are the nastiest looking toenails I've ever seen. And so one by one, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. So Jesus does it. Isn't that awesome? He finds the pitcher, he finds the water, he finds the towel, and he gets down on his hands and knees and starts washing those disciples' stinky feet. Now, I want to put this image on the screen. This next one, please. How many of you have ever done foot washing at church before? Anyone? A few of you? Okay. I've done it a few times over the years in ministry. Uh, Some churches, I would say this first, most churches believe that there are two main ordinances of the Christian church. There's baptism, and then there's the Lord's Supper. But there are some denominations that believe there are three ordinances. You have baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot washing. Some churches believe this is an ordinance that Jesus wanted the church to do this, at least periodically. So some churches do this fairly fairly often. But I can tell you from experience, when I've ever participated in foot washing at a church, this is kind of what the feet look like. If you're going to a church service and you know that someone is going to be washing your feet, what do you make sure you do before you leave your house? 
Man, I've seen my feet. They're pretty gnarly looking. So, you know, we're washing our feet really well. We're trimming our toenails. We make sure there's none of that dirt or grime underneath the toenails. And so this is a pretty good example of what it looks like when we do foot washing these days. The feet are already clean. Notice the water is clean because the feet that were just submerged in them were already clean. The toenails look nice and groomed and clean, and so it's not very nasty. Now, this next picture gives you a pretty good idea of what the disciples' feet might have looked like. They're walking on dirt roads. Remember the sheep, the goats, the animals? They're walking on these same dirt roads. And what do these animals do when they're walking down the road? Yeah, if you don't stop them off the side of the road quickly enough, they just go where they're walking. And so these guys with those sandals, those open-toed sandals, are walking across this. So they probably look like this. There's even a chance their feet look like this next picture. Okay? So imagine Jesus on his hands and knees. He's washing these feet. Some of these feet were worse than others, but all of them were dirty. Some of them were grimy. Imagine as he lifts up a foot, the bottom of that foot is completely black because they're walking around in sandals all the time, and those sandals didn't get replaced very often. He's looking at those toes. There's all sorts of grime underneath them. Those guys were traveling from town to town. Believe me, they didn't pack nail clippers. And so probably had some gnarly-looking toes, and it just blows my mind. He had all the knowledge, he had all the power, and yet he's washing these gnarly-looking things. Amazing. What an amazing Savior that we serve. The disciples had these smelly feet, but Jesus gets down on his hands and knees. He washes them anyway, all 24 of those feet. And as I was thinking about this this last week, it kind of blew my mind because I thought about the specific disciples whose feet he was washing. He washed the feet of all 12 disciples, even though every one of them would pretty much run the other direction when Jesus was being arrested. He washed the feet of Simon Peter, his lead disciple, who would deny three times he knew him, In just a few short hours. And he washes the feet. Get this. He washes the feet of Judas Iscariot. He washes the feet of the man who's about to betray him into the hand of sinners. He had poured three years of his life into grooming Judas Iscariot. And he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes Judas Iscariot's feet as if to say, Judas Iscariot, if you're going to betray me tonight, you might as well betray me with clean feet. Isn't that crazy? That's the Savior we serve. Pretty amazing. Verses 6 through 8. It's Peter's turn to get his feet washed. He's the loud mouth in the group, so he says what everyone else is thinking. Lord, are, are you going to wash my feet? No, you shall never wash my feet. To which Jesus responds, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, the thought of having Jesus kick him to the curb was unbearable to Peter. So he responds in verse 9, In that case, Lord, then not just my feet, but my hands and, and my head as well. And Jesus gives this curious response in verse 10. He says, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. It seems pretty clear here that Jesus is giving an analogy, he's giving a bit of a metaphor here. There's a spiritual truth undergirding what Jesus says in verse 10. Some Bible scholars think that Jesus is referring to baptism. That's the interpretation that William Barclay holds to. And 
He says it this way in his commentary. He says, in the early church and still today, the way in is the way of baptism. Baptism is what we might call the washing of entry. This is not to say that people cannot be saved unless they are baptized, but it does mean that if they are able to be baptized and are too proud to enter by that gate, their pride shuts them out from the family of the faith. In this passage, Jesus was drawing a picture of the washing, which is the entry to the church, and was telling people that they must not be too proud to submit to baptism. It's an interesting interpretation, but most scholars disagree with him. If you follow Barclay's line of reasoning, a person, he would say, needs to be baptized only once, according to the New Testament. You are completely washed in baptism. At that point, you decide to become a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And after that point, when you sin, you don't have to be rebaptized, right? You don't have to be baptized every single time you sin. You've been washed. But you do need to go back to Jesus, according to 1 John 1, 9, to seek his forgiveness whenever you sin. Amen? It's part of what we do at communion time. We go and confess our sins to him and ask him to wash us clean from the sins of this past week. Well, Barclay thinks that the washing Jesus is talking about is baptism. Most Bible scholars say, no, it's simply referring to salvation you're only saved once right you don't need to be saved 17 times i remember i gave my life to jesus christ for the first time when i was seven years old and i gave my life to jesus christ and i was baptized the following sunday but as i was making my way through the teenage years i would go to church camp every year and as i went to church camp man the guy get up and preach a really convicting message and i thought i was going to hell and so i get saved again and then I'd go back the next summer and get saved again. And then the summer after that, I'd get saved again. And, and I didn't understand this. I, I didn't understand that I, I didn't need to be saved again. You're only saved once. What will you go back to Jesus for a fresh cleansing? That seems to be what Jesus is saying here. As Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he taught them this very important theological lesson. If you are my disciple, you must be humble enough to allow me to wash away your sins. If you won't let me wash you, then you have no part with me. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to be my disciples, you've got to be humble enough to let me wash you completely from head to toe when you get saved. And then from that point forward, you don't have to be washed from head to toe, but you need to humbly come according to 1 John 1, 9 and confess your sins to your Savior and experience His fresh forgiveness. You see, the sin of this world has a tendency to stick to us, doesn't it? We are in church, and hopefully you sin less in church than you do outside. But we go home, and sometimes our kids are grumpy. We go home, sometimes our spouse is in a bad mood. We go out to the workplace, sometimes our boss yells at us. Sometimes we're driving down the freeway. Someone flips a finger at us and cusses us up one side and down the other. And Sometimes we get out into that world, and we get a little grimy, don't we? We get a little dirty. And sin sometimes can stick to us. We need to have that fresh light washing on a regular basis. Well, let's pick up in verse 12. You look at verse 12 here, here in John chapter 13. And I read this for you earlier. I'll read it again. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to to his place. And he asked the question, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. 
I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So after washing all his disciples' feet, Jesus returns to his place at the table, and he asks the key question, Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand it? To which his apostles likely responded, Nope. We have no clue uh, what your point is, Jesus. All we know is we're really embarrassed that you just were washing the dirt out from between our toes. We don't know what you're getting at. So Jesus explains in verses 14 to 16, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do what I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. Listen to how Warren Wearsby Uh, reflects on these great verses. He he says it so well. He writes, If the master becomes a slave, where does that put the slave? Well, it puts him on the same level as the master. By becoming a servant, our Lord did not push us down. He actually lifted us up. He dignified sacrifice and service. I want that statement to sink in. Jesus dignified sacrifice and service. Say that with me. Jesus dignified sacrifice and service. If you don't understand that, you won't understand something that is is at the very heart of Christianity. We did not come to be served. We came to serve. Jesus dignified sacrifice and service. You must keep in mind that the Romans had no use for humility. And the Greeks despised manual labor. Jesus combined these two when he washed the disciples' feet. Isn't that a great statement? It's a great insight. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he told the Romans, Romans, you're wrong. Humility is incredibly useful. And Jesus told the Greeks, you're wrong. Manual labor is never to be despised. Humble, loving service to others is the greatest work you could ever do. I've got to tell you, I've got so much respect for my garbage man that picks up garbage and when he knocks over the trash can on a windy day, will put on the emergency brake, climb out of his truck, and make sure that trash can is upright again. Now, some people say, man, that's a terrible job. No, it isn't. It's a great job. Those that are cleaning our sewers, how many of you are thankful there are people out there cleaning our sewers? Imagine if everyone said, nope, you know what? I'm too high and mighty to do that. What if we didn't have people serving us at restaurants? What if we didn't have busboys or those cleaning our tables after we eat? What if we didn't have janitors? What if we didn't have custodians? What if we didn't have any number of these jobs that we may look down upon, but they're absolutely critical to the functioning of society? Jesus says, oh, do not despise manual labor and do not despise humility. William Barclay, I think, says it so well. He writes, the world is full of people who are standing on their dignity when they ought to be kneeling at the feet of their brothers and sisters. When we're tempted to think of our dignity, our prestige, or our rights, let us see again the picture of the Son of God wrapped around with a towel, kneeling at His disciples' feet. I want to tell some of you, you may be in a job you don't think is a great job. Maybe you're in a job you think is beneath you. There is no bad job. There's some messy jobs. How many seasons did, uh, what was his name? Did uh, Dirty Jobs, yeah, Mike Rowe. That's a good show. And I, I, I got to respect that guy, man. He got in there and got dirty with whoever he was with, showing him how to do that particular job. Sometimes we have to just remember, you know what? I've got the job that I have right now, and I'm going to do it my very best for Jesus Christ. 
I'm not too in high and mighty for this job that I have. As a pastor, I wear a lot of hats. Sometimes that hat is scrubbing a toilet. Somebody's got to do it, right? Sometimes it's mopping a floor. Somebody's got to do it. Whatever needs to be done, I encourage you to address it like a servant as we follow in Jesus' footsteps. I heard about a pastor who one week was given an award. He was given an award, the Most Humble Pastor in the World Award. And they gave him a medal to commemorate it. But he made the mistake of wearing that medal the next Sunday. So they took his award away. As soon as he wore it, he was disqualified, right? Because humility is a slippery thing, isn't it? Humility is slippery. As soon as you think you're humble, as soon as you speak about being humble, you're not humble anymore. And that leads us to these four principles I think we can extrapolate from this wonderful passage today. Four principles about true humility. Let's wrap our minds around these because each of these is so important. Let's start with principle number one. If you could please read this with me. Humility doesn't discriminate, but is expressed equally to all. One more time. Humility does not discriminate, but it is expressed equally to all. It blows my mind still when I think about it. Jesus was washing Peter's feet hours before Peter would deny him three times. His number one disciple, he still washes his feet. He washes Judas Iscariot's feet. It just blows my mind knowing full well what Judas Iscariot was about to do. It's amazing. Jesus did that. And so let me be blunt with you. There's no room for petty discrimination in your Christianity. Whether you like a person or can't stand a person, humbly serve them anyway. Right? Black, white, young, old, male, female, Republican or Democrat, in an election year, yes, it doesn't matter. Serve them anyway. Whether they love you or hate you, lovingly serve them anyway. Just like Jesus. Principle number two. Read this with me. Humility is an action and a behavior, not a thought or an attitude. That's true, isn't it? Jesus demonstrates that in John 13 here. Many people describe themselves as a humble person, but once again, once you start thinking you're humble... Once you start talking about being humble, you've automatically disqualified yourself as being humble. Many people will go around and say, I'm a pretty humble person. Well, no, you aren't. Right? Because humility can only be proved by its actions. It's never proven by self-claims about itself. As soon as you think you're humble, you're proving you're not. Just as love is an action not a thought or a feeling, so too is humility. Humility is an action. It's a behavior, not a thought or a feeling. Principle number three, read this with me. Humility receives service without embarrassment. One more time. Humility receives service without embarrassment. This one is tough for a lot of Christians. Christians know the verse, it is better to serve than to, than to be served. We know that verse, right? And so many Christians are very, very good at humbly serving others in their times of need, but refuse to allow any Christians to serve them in their times of need. Right? It's not just a matter of being, of of serving. It's also a matter of allowing yourself to be served. It takes a certain amount of humility to allow someone to pull off your socks 
and pick up your foot and stick it in a bowl of water and wash your feet. And I know most Christians in America would say, count me out. You know what? If Jesus was here in the flesh right now, I would have no problem whatsoever washing his feet. I would be honored to wash the feet of my Savior. But I would not be caught dead allowing any other Christian to wash my feet. You know I'm right, don't you? So many Christians, we can serve, but we don't allow ourselves to be served. But remember that that's not humbleness. That's not humility. That's pride. It's pride that keeps me from being served. And I am guilty as charged all the time praying for people who are on our prayer chain, praying for people who are hurting in our church, going to hospitals and going here and there. And then when I'm sick, when I've got a family member that's in crisis so often, I just keep it to myself and I don't want to burden you with it. That's pride. I need to be humble enough to entrust you with the opportunity to serve me when those moments come. It takes both sides. We have to be served and serve to truly be humble. So we say, well, how did Jesus allow himself to be served? He did it many times, but one of the clearest examples was in the last chapter, right? Two chapters back, chapter 11. Remember what happened when he went to Bethany? He allowed a woman named Mary to do what? Get down on her hands and knees and wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, right? So before Jesus ever got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples, he allowed Mary to wash his feet with her own hair. Everybody in the room was embarrassed except for Jesus because ultimately the humble person doesn't get embarrassed when they're served because they know this is part of God's plan and it's following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Finally, principle number four, please read this with me. Humility leads to true and lasting joy. Can I get an amen to that? Humility leads to true and lasting joy. Did you know that the nearer you are to suffering people, the nearer you are to God? Now, I had some issues with Mother Teresa's theology. She was a very strong Catholic, and the Catholics have some messed up theology. But I think that Mother Teresa had a really good handle on this principle. As she was there in the slums of Calcutta, ministering to lepers day in and day out, she understood well that Jesus Christ identifies with the poor and the sick and the diseased and the outcast. Amen? Amen. Jesus identifies with the outcast of society. And there is a closeness to Jesus that you will experience only when you are next to someone who is hurting, someone who is bleeding, someone who is dying, someone who is outcast from their family or from society. There's certain closeness that only comes through being around those who are in the most humble circumstances. So if we, if we reject humble service, we end up rejecting happiness as well. Most people go through life pursuing happiness. Chasing after happiness, not realizing that happiness is very elusive. There's certain happiness and joy that can only come when we're doing what Jesus did, serving others. And so that's one of the reasons I mentioned to you a week or two ago about our dear servant, Mellie, in this church. She lived a great life in large part because she was a servant. And she followed in Jesus' footsteps. Even when she was sick, she was serving. Even when she couldn't get out of bed, she was serving. And so I hope that all of us would have that same heart of humble service. No matter what incapacities I may have, I'm going to use this life God has given me to serve others. 
I'll leave you with Warren Wiersbe's quote. I think it's so good. He writes this. Be sure to keep these lessons in their proper sequence. Humbleness, holiness, happiness. Say those three with me. Humbleness, holiness, happiness. One more time. Humbleness, holiness, happiness. Submit to the Father. Keep your life clean and serve others. This is God's formula for true spiritual joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you so much for doing the unfathomable. You had all knowledge of what was about to transpire. Yet you continued with your mission. You had all authority and power to stop what was about to come down the pike. But you allowed it to come anyway. Allowing yourself to be betrayed allowing yourself to be arrested, allowing yourself to be crucified. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you did for me and what you did for us. Help us, Lord, to follow in your footsteps. I pray that we would never think we're too high and mighty for these piddly little tasks that sometimes are right in front of us. Lord, we're not too high and mighty to pick up that tumbleweed that's blowing in front of us that piece of trash on the ground that someone else dropped, that trash liner that needs to be emptied, that toilet that needs to be plunged, that saint, Lord, that needs to be prayed with. Lord Jesus, help us to love those that we like and love those we dislike. Help us to serve those, Lord, who are our friends and serve those who are our enemies. Help us to pray for those, Lord, who are healthy and also pray for those who are on their deathbeds. That there are ones in this room today or ones watching this broadcast, Lord, that would take the challenge this week to serve more than they've ever served before. And I pray, O oh God, that as they serve in more humble ways this week, that you would reveal yourself to them in fresh new ways, that they would see that this is true, that there is a closeness with you that can only be attained when we're serving others humbly. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray if there's anyone here today who has never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that right now they would say, Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Please wash away my sins. I want to follow you and serve you for the rest of my life. I'm sorry for the commands that I have broken during my life, but I give my life over to you. I will trust you and serve you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.